there's a saying that the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And uh, we're starting a journey this morning, and it, it probably will seem like a thousand miles before we're done. Thanks, Becky. <laughs> Laugh of confidence. Uh, it's, uh, it's a journey that takes us back to, really, to the beginning of things, and, you know, actually past that, it takes us back before the beginning of things, but then it ends in a coffin in Egypt. Do you know what book we're starting? We're starting the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis this morning. Now, I confess, uh, you know, the Scripture's God's Word, and anybody who teaches it, Bill and I were talking about this a week ago, you incur a stricter judgment than others. You know, you're held to a higher standard, so to speak. It's with some intimidation always, especially that I start teaching through a new book of the Bible. It's especially so if it's a book like Genesis. It's a huge book. It's 50 chapters long. And it's also a key book within the Bible. And so for both reasons, it's intimidating. We will not go through Genesis uh, in one long thousand mile trek we will break this up the first section we cover will be chapters 1 through 11 and this morning we're really not going to do more than go through a brief introduction which I hope is helpful and then we're going to cover two verses two verses only now Stan I actually when I started preparing this I was going to start with the first four words of verse 1 and I thought about Stan and the kind of angst that might produce if he divided 50 chapters by four words a week and I thought okay (laughs) Two verses, that'll get us there. We're, uh, we're doing the whale eating. You know, you eat a whale one bite at a time, and that's kind of the way we're doing Genesis, one, one small chunk at a time. When I talk through the introduction this morning, and this will probably come up in the future too, just one of the terms, when you talk about the first five books of the Bible, I may say the law, I may say the Torah, I may say the Pentateuch, they're all the same thing. It's the first five books of the Bible. We're talking about the same thing. I realized as I was going through this, I use those terms interchangeably, and so if you're not familiar with that, they all mean the same thing. They mean the first five books of the Bible. Genesis means beginning, or the beginning. And we get our title for Genesis from the Latin translation of the Hebrew, where the Latin word is Genesis, the beginning, the Genesis of all things. On the introduction side, You guys know in our culture today that if you believe in a literal rendering of Genesis 1 through 11, you're kind of the odd man out. And so through a good portion of this introduction, I want to talk about things from an apologetic point of view. That is, when we go through Genesis, part of what we'll do is look at it from a perspective which tells us why the passage or the text is credible in the manner in which it's being given. Um, We're facing as Christians in our culture, Randall prayed about this in Sunday school, we we have become very much a pluralistic culture and we don't all believe the same things. And what I believe about one thing is fine and you believe something else, it's fine, even if those things are in conflict with one another. So in our culture, many if not most people or circles will see in Genesis a myth story or a good story or a Jewish fable. 
And if you believe in it, that's good for you because otherwise, you know, you don't know how to feel being this, this accident of nature, you know, in the dark, vast universe in which you're the accidental stepchild. So for many people, the view of Genesis especially, but most, if not all, of the scriptures, that it's a good story, but it's not more than that. And so there are things we need to know to be aware of that. And <clears throat> let me tell you... Uh, the assault on the Bible, it's increasing, and I'm sure it's going to do nothing but increase in this. If you guys remember a year or so ago, and more than that with the book, but the Da Vinci Code, the book came out, and then the movie, and basically it calls into question primarily the New Testament. But also, if you have your ear to the pavement at all related to the Bible and culture and integrity, etc., Guys like Bart Ehrman are writing books in which they'll tell you point blank the Bible is not credible as it is given. And, and here's just a for instance. This is the reason why you need to know something about Genesis and something about apologetics. Here's Bart Ehrman. He's a local kid who made good. He's from Lawrence, Kansas. He grew up, and, and in his words in quotation marks, he became a born-again Christian in high school. He went to Moody Bible Institute. He went to Wheaton College, and he went to Yale Divinity School, okay? And he's a committed atheist today. And that apparently is his qualification to head the Religious Studies Department at Duke University. This guy is a world-class Greek scholar. He was trained by Bruce Metzger, the world-class Greek scholar at, at uh, Princeton. He tells you the more he read his Bible, the more questions came up, and he lost his faith in the process of religious studies. And I guess what I'm getting at is two things. One, <clears throat> as you hear things, or as you hear critiques from other people, or as you read stories, your faith in the scriptures will be challenged because the world around you is going to challenge it, period. And that's true if you're Joe Blow on the street, it's true if you go to a religious institution. Most religious institutions today do not teach the integrity of the scriptures. They don't. So you're going to be assaulted personally by attacks on the integrity and the credibility of the scriptures. You need to know that. The other thing is some of the people doing this are going to be people who've told you they've been in your shoes, they've walked down that line, they've made the investigation, it all ends up vacuous. It's not what it purports to be, like Bart Ehrman. So you need to know that. So there's going to be challenges to your view of the scriptures and it's going to come from within and it's going to come from without. You need to be aware of that and be prepared for that. Bart Ehrman is an academic and a scholar and his arguments, his critiques, therefore, are kind of at a high level. But you can go to our own library and read also 10 Things Your Minister Wants to Tell You But Can't Because He Needs the Job, which I've read by Oliver Thomas. In contrast to Ehrman's erudite, scholastic, academic treatments, you get Thomas's trite, short works, popular level, in which he just tells you the Bible's not what it purports to be. There is no moral standards, homosexuality, anything else that the Bible would, would appear to condemn. There's no moral issues, period. So all I'm saying is, especially with Genesis, because it's the book of beginnings, but with the scriptures in general, if you aren't prepared to be challenged, you're in trouble. And if you don't have some sense of why the Bible is what it purports to be, you're in trouble. 
and you're going into a world that will attack your faith, and in part it will do so by attacking the foundation of your faith, the scriptures themselves. So especially going into Genesis, we need to be aware of this. Now, this relatively recent but growing assault on the Bible follows about 150 years of concerted attack on the scriptures. And if you go back to Europe, especially Germany, and around the 1850s, the middle of the 1800s, a view of looking at the scriptures developed called higher criticism. And, and in the past, we assumed that the Bible was God's word, but higher critics informed us, no, you know what this really is? It's the product and the invention of man. And for instance, Genesis and the Pentateuch, they're not the product of no- Moses, but actually a variety of authors over a variety of periods of time and for different reasons, they all wrote these sections. And then later editors, or what are sometimes called redactors, they took those fragments of cloth, if you will, and they sewed them all together. So what you really have is not a God-breathed document. You really have this patchwork quilt that some astute and pretty sharp writers have put together. That's what you have. It's not God's word. Then at the same time, archaeology started being developed as a science. You guys know... uh, The Sunday school, the gal mentioned the Germans stole the altar of Zeus from Pergamos. Um, Napoleon uh, can be credited with many things, one of which is kind of a drive towards archaeology, too. Napoleon loved Egypt and his armies as they kind of rampaged that part of the world. They took all kinds of things back to Paris. That's why if you go to the Louvre and you see all these artifacts, this was started by Napoleon. Well, Part of that, following Napoleon, archaeology as a science began to be developed. And so part of what came out of that was, as archaeologists start digging up, the key spots are biblical spots. And you know what they start saying? They say, you know what? We can't validate these stories. Therefore, they're not true. This was often based on silence, that is, what we have not found. And always based on speculation or interpretation, but archaeologists started saying the same thing. This is about 150 years ago. So critics, literary guys looking at the scripture say it's not what it says. Archaeologists say we can't validate those stories. It's because of that. It's because the Bible's been under assault and it's because you're going to hear some of this assault that you need to, in some way at least, you need to have some minimum ability to say, I know what these arguments are and I know why they're not true. I know why the scriptures have integrity. In the end, it is not man's word that really carries the day or that we're primarily concerned about it's god's word and you know it's kind of laughable you remember in psalm 2 when man shakes his fist at heaven and and says god i'm going to break your chains off me i'm going to live life as i please well this attack on the bible reminds me of that we are you and i are the critics are we're the grass and we're the flowers of isaiah 40 verse 8 we grow up we live for a breath of time We age and we die. And God's word goes on. God's word goes on. God goes on unchanged, unchangeable. So we need to have a a little higher view of God and his word and a little lower view of ourselves and our human critics. If you decide, if you guys, if you personally said, I'm going to investigate this and and I end up where Bart Ehrman is or somewhere along that scale, you need to realize if you throw out Genesis as being what it intends it itself to be, that is, as a, a real work describing for us how this world and everything in it came to be, you need to understand that if you pitch Genesis 1 to 11 or 1 to 50 or whatever, you've got to pitch the rest of your Bible as well. 
because the rest of the Bible affirms the integrity and the trustworthiness of Genesis and of the opening 11 chapters, the incredible stories of Genesis, whether it's creation or whether it's uh, Noah. The rest of the Bible assumes that Genesis is true as it's given. So the prophets quote Genesis. Jesus in the Gospels quotes Genesis. The New Testament writers quote Genesis. The Bible, Revelation, ends on the themes that are started in Genesis. So it's, uh, it's popular to say I'm a Christian, but I don't, but I see the opening chapters of Genesis as figurative, not literal. You're in trouble if you take that position because of where it leads. You've got to pitch the rest of the Bible if the first 11 chapters at least aren't true. Anytime you read about the author of Genesis or the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, it's always the same in the scriptures, and it is Moses, uh, in contrast to higher critics. Uh, there's several verses that affirm this. Sorry, my stand keeps sliding. Um, <clears throat> let me read a few just so you've heard them. Exodus 34:27. the Lord said to Moses, write down these words. God says to Moses, I want you to write down to record these words. Or in John 5, 46, Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Jesus says Moses wrote these books of the Bible. Luke 24, 27, when Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, it says beginning with Moses and then with all the prophets. And you guys, uh, depending on the use of the law, the prophets, and the writings would be the three categories of the Old Testament books. Sometimes it's just said the law and the prophets, in which we assume they mean the writings as well. We assume when Jesus, when Luke records for Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he's saying the Old Testament. He's saying all of the Old Testament, that he explained to them the things concerning himself, beginning with Moses. Moses wrote, according to Jesus, the Pentateuch. And then last in Acts 3.22, Quoting from the Old Testament, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Yeah, sure, thanks, Sean. I, I'm going to keep playing with this thing otherwise. Thank you. So, the Bible says Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. You may hear as a critique about the Pentateuch, you may hear something like this. The Pentateuch and Moses' writings are actually copies. They're imitations of earlier works from other cultures. And the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Law Code of Hammurabi, if you've read anything or hear anything, these would be the two best known uh, earlier sources that someone would say, well, look, the story of the flood, that's, that's straight out of Gilgamesh or whatever. Um, let, let me frame, frame that in a different way. You know that if Genesis is true, that all of humanity came from Noah and his children. All of humanity came from Noah and his children. And then at Babel, when cultures are scattered, when we develop independent cultures because language is confused and people go off to the rest of the earth, all of those people, all of those cultures would have had the same stories of creation. They would have had the same story about Noah and the ark. And our assumption is, with the scriptures being true, that what's happened to those stories is that they were corrupted over time in other cultures around the world. So, 
The fact that there are other stories that Genesis is like simply reveals common ancestry, if you will, or that most cultures in one way or another still have some shadow of the truth of where we all came from and of those stories of our beginnings. The fact that if the Epic of Gilgamesh precedes Moses' writing of the Torah, let's say around 1400 B.C., it doesn't have to mean that Moses copied something else. It can simply reflect the fact that all culture shared at some level, to some degree, the same stories became because they came from the same place. Scholars will also point out that some portions of the Pentateuch may not have been recorded by Moses. So you can read Genesis 14, 14, in which it tells us that Abraham, chasing after Lot to rescue him, says he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now this passage in Genesis is being written as a story. It's not a, a future-telling prophetic portion. There was no tribe of Dan. There was no geography in Israel of Dan at this point, of course, because the promised land hasn't been entered or settled. Or you can read in Genesis 36, 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Of course, in Moses' day, it's going to be more than 400 years before you get a king in Israel. So critics will point out, look, this doesn't purport to be prophetic utterances about the future. It purports to be part of the story in history. Moses couldn't have written this. Most of the scripture, this is true, and you guys, if you remember back when we looked at John 8, or if you talk about Mark 16, we don't have any of the original documents of the Bible. They don't exist. What we do have are numerous, and in some cases, multitudes of manuscripts that we can compare with each other to come up with what we assume is the closest thing to the original documents. If you look at most churches or orthodox or conservative Christian groups' uh, statements of faith related to the scriptures, they'll normally say something like this. We believe the scriptures and the original documents were God-breathed, given without error. We don't have any original documents left. And generally, in some, if not most, books of the Bible, it appears that there has been some editing of those original documents. This was true in John 8 when we talked about the woman caught in adultery. If you go back to earlier manuscripts, you'll see it's, it's in Luke's Gospel in some early manuscripts. It's in other portions of John, etc. So we don't have the original manuscripts, but we've got so many good manuscripts and compared to any other ancient writings, nothing compares with the integrity of the Bible. If you guys remember too, just one point on this, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 47, the manuscripts we used for our Old Testament were from eight or 900 AD. And we turn up the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're a thousand years older than manuscripts we're already working from. And lo and behold, the integrity of those thousand year old documents, older than we had, is so close to what we are already have, we say, gosh, you know what? We don't have originals, but we sure have something that's awfully, awfully close. So I say this to say, if you hear critics say, there's other stories Moses copied from, or there's some editing, we know there's some editing in Genesis, or whatever, you can acknowledge all of that and say, you know what? Yeah. There's not a problem with that, though, in saying the scriptures and Genesis is not still what it purports to be. It doesn't require you to lose your faith to hear what the critics are saying. There's rational defenses for all of this. You don't have to go the way of Bart Ehrman when you hear these 
So there's some editing. Jesus still says Moses is the, is the author, and that's certainly the tack we'll take as we go through. Winding down on our introduction, Genesis tells us where we came from, tells us how evil entered God's good creation. That's a huge issue if you're talking to people about Christ or, or a good God. Where did evil come from? Genesis tells us. It tells us God's determination to judge all that's deficient, this book of beginnings. God's promise to bless and to save. In fact, God's, God's promises to bless is a major theme in this book. And then it's the beginning of God's unfolding plans for mankind and for his son from the earliest chapters of Genesis. There's a ton more we could say, and we probably will say some more as we go through, especially the creation account, but that's where we'll, we'll park the introduction this morning. We'll go into the text, verses 1 and 2 this morning now. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. We'll read that again. That was so good, we'll do it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then verse 1 only, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you remember earlier this year when we talked about theology proper, we said God was eternal, that he had no beginning. God is timeless. God didn't have a point at which he started or which his life would end. He's timeless. This says, in the beginning, God created. Before there was a beginning, there was God. And then when time began and matter in the universe we inhabit started, it started because God started it. So this timeless, eternal, omnipotent God created the heavens and the earth that we occupy. He's distinct from it. He's not the same as his his universe. He always was. But then sometime in eternity, however we even talk about this, time began because God created the heavens and the earth. Matter came into being from nothing. This term that says create is a Hebrew word that's used of God only. It's not used of anyone or anything else. God created this universe as we see it and know it today out of nothing. When it says God, it uses this word Elohim. And you guys, uh, you know, if you look at God, when we translate English for God from Hebrew, it could be El, meaning God, or Elyon, or it could be Elohim. The term here is Elohim, and it could mean a couple different things. Most scholars would tell you Elohim is the, let's see if I get this right, the plural of majesty. And that means something like, It doesn't necessitate that it's a plural person, but that it's a magnification of God's majesty or qualities of deity. It it expresses God, using a plural term, to magnify God. The other side of this, too, though, is it is a plural term, and God could be, even here from verse 1, showing that God is a single entity with three persons. Many will tell you also that this is the first hint of the Trinity. God uses a plural name to identify himself, Elohim, not El or Eloah singular, but Elohim, plural. It's also Elohim, the God who created the heavens and the earth, 
is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember that when this is written, when Genesis is written, and when the, the law or the Torah is written, remember it's written to Israel. So that God is identifying himself to Israel as the God who created the heavens and the earth. You remember, Israel has come out of Egypt where there's numerous gods, and they're coming into a land of promise that worship numerous gods. And so when God says to Israel, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, he's making sure they understand that the God who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who spoke and led Moses and Israel, it's not some miniature God. It's not a God of a place or a region or a mountaintop. It's the God of all gods. Their God, the one they're following, he's the one who created the heavens and the earth. He's the one who spoke the world into existence. Think about this too. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, you can find a very similar passage in the New Testament in John 1. And when you talk about the integrity of the Bible and that if you pitch Genesis 1, you're in trouble with the rest of the Bible, perhaps nowhere is that more clear than in John 1. When John wants to introduce Jesus, he trades on the same phrases and the same imagery as Genesis 1. So when he wants to tell us about Jesus Christ, God the Son, coming into the world, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Do you see the same imagery, the same phrases? In the beginning, God, in the beginning, he made all things. When John wants to tell us about Jesus, he ties it to what in his mind is a sure foundation, Genesis 1.1. Jesus is the Elohim that spoke the creations into existence in Genesis 1.1. You can't very well get rid of Genesis 1 and keep John because they're tied to the same theme. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this means the God who spoke to Abraham the God who spoke to Moses from a burning bush and on top of a fiery mountain, the one who led Israel by a pillar of cloud and a fire, the one who revealed himself as the word of God in the incarnation, that one, that same one, he's God, he's creator of the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 is a little problematic, and I want to digress as we talk about this. Verse 2 reads, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Uh, many teach today, and some of you may here believe, uh, something that I'm going to, I hopefully can discredit for you, a view of verses 1 and 2 that says this. In between verses 1 and 2, there's a gap. And there's a gap for a couple reasons, and we'll look at those in just a minute, but the gap between verses 1 and 2 is a gap between an original creation and some, some perhaps eons of time in which there was this destruction that occurred so that when you get to verse 2 and you read the terms formless and void, you're actually looking at the end 
of an original creation that fell apart. And most advocates of this position will, will say something like this. In between these two, we have the eons of evolution. If they're Christians who believe in what they call theistic evolution, they'll tell you that in between here are the eons of evolution between verses 1 and 2. You know, you're always in trouble if you're making an argument from silence. And that's, that's, for the greatest part, that's what this rests on. But there's two reasons why this position have, has advocates, that there's a huge, undetermined amount of time between verses 1 and 2. The first is this. It's the terms formless and void. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth sounds all good. But then verse 2 says the earth, this creation, was formless and void. And the thinking goes something like this. Formless and void does not describe the good creation of verse 1 and 2. Formless and void in the Hebrew are words that are generally used of destruction, not good things. Formless and void, these same Hebrew terms are used in two places in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. Isaiah 45.18 reads this. Uh, God who formed the earth and made it, he established it and did not create it a waste place, formed it to be inhabited, uses the same term. God did not create the, ter- the earth formless and void. I think the Hebrew is uh, bohu and, and way tohu. God didn't create it this way. So they look back in and they say, verse 2 says it's formless and void. That's bad. God says in Isaiah he didn't create it that way. That means verse 2 is something different than verse 1, not the same creation. The second reason this is advocated is the evolutionary ages, basically. And it goes like this. If I assume that the majority of scientists today are right and that we are in some way, or our world is in some way, significantly the product of evolution, I've got to find a, a place to stick the evolutionary ages. And I've got a problem because... I can't get that in the rest of Genesis. But if evolution's true, I've got to have a place to stick millions or billions of years. And so the place between verse 1 and 2 looks pretty good. Once I get past verse 2, I'm in trouble because I can't really stick them in. But in between verses 1 and 2 looks pretty good. There are problems with this, I'm simplifying everything and I apologize for that, but there's problems with this view. The first is this. If verse 2 is the end of an original creation and everything that follows is recreation, then you really don't have the story of beginnings, you have the story of of re-beginnings, of secondary beginnings, which makes no sense, frankly, in the book about the beginnings of the heavens and the earth. You also have this difficulty of treating God's statements about everything he makes. When he says God created the light, he spoke the light into existence, God saw the light and he said it was good, it's as if for the first time. This makes no sense if it's a recreation. Are you with me on this? Does this make sense? Have you guys heard this, the gap theory? Is this, I think it's popular enough that... I will tell you, it's what most commentators believe in. I find myself in the minority here. Um, from guys a lot smarter than me. (laughs) That may be problematic later, I don't know. But I I still can't get around the the problems I have with it. Um, It then renders this creation story at some level as nonsense. It's not a creation story, it's a recreation story. And when God looks at his creation and says, gosh, it's good, he's not seen it for the first time. This isn't the first time it's all been here. 
it's the second time and, and it's all an old story. It's, it's an old story redone. You can't get that if the normal reading of the text simply does not read that way. Theologically, there's a huge problem with this as well, especially if your argument for this is to accommodate the evolutionary ages, totally apart from science related to evolution and creation, having nothing to do with that. Theologically, when you read Romans 5.12, you've got a problem with this gap theory. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Theologically, Paul says, death in this world, in God's good earth, came from sin, from Adam. If you believe in the gap theory, and you're accommodating the evolutionary ages in which we see the death of all those dinosaurs, theologically, you're saying death came before Adam. You can't get there from the scriptures. The scriptures are clear. Old and New Testament, death on the earth came from man. If you're a Christian theistic evolutionist, you basically accommodate all of evolution. You say, I'll give you all of evolution, all of the ages, all of the years, and I'll stick it there and I'm good to go. Theologically, you can't do that because evolution assumes death and you can't get to death before you get to Adam and Eve, theologically, Old or New Testament. There's problems with this view. Here's my alternative view, or a couple alternative views. One is to see Genesis 1-1 as the summary statement about the creation, but that it means us to see it like a potter putting a lump of clay down on a wheel. Have you guys ever seen a potter at work? Routinely what they'll have is a big chunk of clay, and they cut a piece off, and they throw that shapeless mass onto a wheel. And by the way, this picture of a potter with the clay, it's a constant refrain in both the Old and New Testaments about God's work. So you're starting with something that's biblical inherently. One verse as an example, Jeremiah 18:6, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as a potter? Like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. In this scene, Genesis 1-1 would be God, if you will, taking the lump of clay and throwing it down on the wheel. He creates all of the matter of the universe and he throws it down on a wheel. All the matter of the universe is there. You could call this, if you want, think of it as a big bang. All the matter of the universe is right there, but it's unformed, it's unshaped. And then the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is the potter, if you will, sitting over the clay and forming it as God divides light and darkness and so on. So the creation of matter, space, and time, all there in verse 1, the creation account following in, in chapters 1 and 2 would be similar to a potter shaping that. Remember, in the lump of clay that's thrown on the wheel, the vessel is present. The final product, it's there in an unformed state. And all the potter does is shapes through pressure and pulling. He shapes the clay that's there into its final form. But it's all there. It's a process of formation that creates it into its final form. A similar thought is given by John Sailhammer. Sailhammer believes that in Genesis 1-1 that the creation is, is basically fully formed. That is, the planets, the stars, the galaxies, space-time, the earth, the moon, etc. It's all there, but that primarily related to the earth and the area of Eden 
that the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 then shows God fine-tuning, if you will, the garden, the specific area where he wanted to put Adam and Eve. It's, a, it's kind of a variation in the theme, but that fully formed generally, but God fine-tunes, if you will, the land, and this is a key concept in Genesis and in the Old Testament, the land, if you will, the temple area where God's going to walk with Adam and Eve. He fine-tunes that. Either way, though, I just say these as examples to say, you don't have to create a gap and eons of evolutionary ages between verses 1 and 2 to make sense of Genesis. And, and in my mind, you make nonsense of it instead, trying to do that, whether you're thinking of the grammar of the terms formless and void or whether you're thinking of evolutionary ages. Winding down on this, uh, the phrase, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water, uh, you know, if you think of Carl Sagan films and the great voice and show in space, you know, what you see is this a kind of a cold, distant, vacuous, impersonal universe that you and I are specks in. But in God's creation account, the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. And I love this image. When God made the heavens and the earth, it wasn't an impersonal act. But in the person of the Holy Spirit, God himself is there hovering over his creation to make it into exactly what he wanted. And this term hovering is neat. The same term is used in Deuteronomy 32.11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, spreads its wings to catch them, carries them on its pinions. That's the same word about the Spirit of God hovering over this new creation. So in God's account, it's not this impersonal wasteland of creation. It's very personal. How, whatever in your mind's eye you see when you read Genesis 1, 1, and 2, the Spirit of God should be in that image hovering over this new creation to make it exactly what God wants it to be. And I guess part of why this is so appealing to me is because in some significant sense, God is still doing that today. You know, you and I as Christians, we are God's creation also. We're, in fact, he calls us a new creation, Paul does in 2 Corinthians. And just as the Holy Spirit of God was hovering over that initial creation, the Holy Spirit is doing that same thing today. And he's taken masses of clay, if you will, that we are, and he's pulling it and he's pushing it. He's exerting forces on it to form it into the creation, the finished product, if you will, that God wants. So I love this phrase, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water because it's God personally present. It's not eons of evolution. It's not accident and chance and random processes and forces over time. It's God, the Holy Spirit, personally directing the Trinity's will so that the creation would become all that he wanted it to. I love the fact, too, that the creation account is simple, it's elegant, it's direct, it's lovely, and it's comforting. It's personal. Let me ask you as we wind down here, do you think it's more likely that a cold, impersonal universe of matter, space, and time produced loving, thinking, caring, personal creatures like you, or, you and I, or that it's more likely that a personal God did that? which seems more likely. This isn't hard for me, not hard at all. Think, too, of this, back to the beginning. 
the first audience of, this, of these verses, this book and the Pentateuch, they were the Jews. They'd been led out of Egypt and all the life they knew. And they had been in the wilderness for a while at least. And they've had some disasters. They've had some triumphs. And they're getting ready to enter the promised land and they're going to have more of the same, some disasters, some triumphs. And they need to know that the God they're following is able to lead them on. They need to know that their God isn't one God of many. He's not somebody who lived in Egypt and, and left them at the border. Because remember, for the ancient world, most of them believed in local gods, national gods, geographic gods. They need to know that the God that led them out of Egypt was going to be with them and would be with them in the future as they went into the promised land. And the same God wants you and I to know that he's not a random process, that he's not a local God, he's not a puny God, but the God that you and I follow is the God who spoke the heavens and earth into being. And that just as those Jews who were hearing this for the first time, it gave them confidence about who was leading them, where they were going, that they would get there. The same thing should apply for you and I. In fact, in spades, really, because we know the rest of the story. We've got the end of the story at our fingertips now in the book of Revelation. God himself has come to the earth and has ratified, if you will, Moses' words in Genesis, has given, now, given us now a new covenant, has told us there's a new creation he's leading us to. So we're not serving puny gods. We're serving the God of all gods, the one who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. This should be interesting in the weeks ahead, months ahead. Um, we'll talk a little bit about science and a little bit about evolution and some personal things and, and hopefully we'll address issues that will give you confidence that Genesis is what it says it is, God is who he says he is, and that when you hear the attacks that have caused failure, many around, you'll have a reason to know why these things are true. You'll have confidence in the things that you've already believed. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that you have left here on this earth that you created, both yourself and your spirit and your word. And Lord, this three-strand cord of you being with us and your word being with us, Lord, they give us strength. And Father, I pray that the truth of this first of books, this beginning of beginnings, Lord, helps us to know you closer, more personally, gives us confidence in who you are and what you're up to today. Lord, help us to have answers for inquiring critics as to why your word is credible, why Genesis is credible. Lord, in the end, as we interact with others, help us to be able to present Christ in a way that's meaningful and valid thanks that there's all the evidence in the world to know you and to believe in you, to cast ourselves with abandon on you, Lord. Thanks that the truth really is present within your word and that it reflects reality, things as they really are. Build up our faith, Lord, as we study through this book. Help us to know you better and be drawn more closely to you. In Jesus' name, amen.